before Christians just grab up whatever new technological thing comes at them, we need to critically evaluate it and say, wait a minute, can we still fit biblical content into this? And will biblical content come out on the other end as biblical content and not say, for example, just showmanship? Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor at Cornerstone Community Church here in Joplin, Maryland. And our topic for today is this. What about the church using modern tech? Like, what do you think about online services? I've had some people, not in our church, but some people in the area here kind of raise their brows at me like, you're what? You're online services? I know of a very respectable church or two that are adamantly opposed to putting their services online. So what do you think about online services? And then what do you think about churches having what they call a, quote, digital campus, unquote, or doing church in the metaverse? What do you think about churches using all kinds of tech, like, frankly, we're trying to use, beginning to use here at Cornerstone? What do you think of all that? Well, there are some things I would like you to think about it, and there are some things I would like you to think, no, not that about it, but yes, this about it. So that's where we're going today. So let's start here. Let me just say that in using tech, uh, we're not doing something Christians have never done before. So Christians have always used some forms of tech that are available to them. I won't say all because we don't want to be uncritical about what kinds we use and what kinds we don't use. But uh, Christians have long used different forms of tech. For example, let me go all the way back to the first century, and it's the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul has command. He's supposed to get his message out into all the world, so he's seeking to do that. So what does he do? Does he personally travel to all the world? Well, no, he really can't do that. So he uses the technology that was available to him to travel to some other places. For example, in Acts chapter 17, pardon me, 27, we know that he's traveling and he's on a ship. Don't picture a little boat. Those ships actually carried 276 men. He was on one of those ships and was shipwrecked, actually, and wound up on the island of Malta. But what was he doing on a ship? That was a form of technology then. It was wind power. It was maybe muscle power if the, if the boat also had guys with oars, probably a combination of both. And he was using the tech available to him to take his message somewhere where he couldn't otherwise get it by feet. Um, we don't know this. It's possible that he sat on a wagon sometime and a donkey or a horse pulled the wagon. That's technology. That's for locomotion. So Paul used tech that was available to him to travel, but he used another kind of tech that was available to him. He wrote and sent letters. He wrote and sent letters. So the technology there was he had papyrus. Somebody had to make that papyrus. He had a, a pen, uh, I think it was called a reed, and he had ink that somebody mixed up. Probably, uh, we're almost certain, he had, let's call him a secretary, who did all that and actually uh, took down Paul's discourse, and then they probably edited it together, and he got it to be exactly what he wanted it to be. But they, he wrote papyrus so he could send it to other, other churches and other locations where he couldn't be. That's using technology to get his message out. One downside of that technology was it still traveled very, very slowly. Like for him to go to your church, that was a slow trip. But, and, but sending the papyrus was no faster. It could travel at the, the speed of feet, human feet, or at the speed of hoofs, horses, or at the speed of human muscle pulling oars, or at the speed of wind in your sails. That's all that was available to them in those days. So he had tech available. He could write a letter. He could send the letter, but it was still going to travel very, very slowly. And 
Well, for a long time, well, actually all the way down to 1440, that's about all the tech Christians had available to them to send messages to other places. Well, what happened in 1440? Well, you probably know this. There was this amazing new revolutionary piece of technology that was invented in Europe, in Gutenberg, in fact. Are you figuring out who this is? 1440 uh, in Germany, and it was actually uh, the printing press, the movable type printing press, which we now believe had actually been functional in China about 400 years earlier, back in 1040. But uh, Gutenberg and people were aware of what was in China and decided we're going to make that, but we're going to make a better model. And it seems like they did. And so what happened with the printing press? Well, now that was new tech, man. That was really crazy, revolutionary new tech. Because instead of it taking one guy months or even years to hand copy a Bible for you to buy, imagine if you had to buy a Bible and it took a guy a year or a couple years to write it out for you. That would be one expensive Bible, and you couldn't afford it, and there wouldn't be many available. Now they can print Bibles like mass-produced Bibles. So it got way faster and way cheaper, and that's technology. Uh, did Christians use that technology? Oh, man, did they? So uh, Luther's sermons and writings went out in, in that form. Calvin, they mass-produced. Wingley, they mass-produced. Everybody, all the great reformers, they were employing that new technology to get their message, their words, out to people that they couldn't do otherwise. By the way, if you want to see a really cool and believed to be pretty close rendition of what a Gutenberg press would have looked like. You got to travel to Washington, D.C. I live an hour and a half from downtown D.C. And you got to go to the Museum of the Bible and see the Gutenberg press that they have up there. My wife and I were there recently, by the way. We made the mistake of going there on a motorcycle, and I looked at my phone, and I-95 looked great, so we got on it. And man, was that ever a big mistake. Have you ever been in stop, go, stop, go, stop, go for about 45 minutes on a motorcycle? We did that. Anyway, so we got down there to the museum, and the Gutenberg press I had the girl who was dressed up in period attire and who knew all about it all to myself at that moment in the museum. Debbie was looking at something else, and she gave me like, like the complete. She printed something for me. She hung it up on a line to dry and showed me how they did it, and it was amazing. So if you can, I'd recommend you go to that. But that press came out, and Christian said, yeah, technology, the latest new modern thing. We can get our message out. Let's use it. So in using modern tech— in using social media, and doing what we're doing right now. Uh, we're, we're just doing the same thing, more modern version, same thing that other Christians have done. Well, what came after Gutenberg? We had feet, horse, wind, and now printing press. What's next? Before I tell you, let me just say, if you're enjoying this podcast, um, please share us with a friend, and if you would, even write a review, and that would go a long way to helping us get our message out to more people. Thanks. Well, we could uh, talk about ships, and ships got faster, steam was invented, trains, uh, they traveled faster. In the 1830s, trains became popular in the U.S. In the 1850s and 60s, they started to become really popularly used. But what was the next thing that Christians used to really get their message out? Now they can put their message on a train and go somewhere. They can put themselves on a train and go somewhere. They can go on faster ships and go somewhere, send their message on faster ships. But what came next? And it was something that really accelerated the speed at which you could get your message out. It was new technology. It was invented by a man, it was developed by a man named Samuel Morse. Now, Samuel Morse was a brother in Christ. He was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1844, he got it figured out.
he got it working. In fact, this is really cool. Uh, the first way he publicly demonstrated how it worked, demonstrated it's worth something, it, it's, it's got utility, he sent a Morse code message to the United States Congress, and the now famous message was, was these words, quote, what God hath wrought, end quote. So he was a man of God, and he knew this can be leveraged for the gospel. This can carry the message like nobody's ever carried the message before in written form. And so he sent to Congress what God hath wrought. He was attributing the development of Morse code to the providence of God, to the kindness of God, to the goodness of God. So Morse code was developed. Did Christians use it? Oh, man, did they. Let me give you one example. In, uh, in the late 1880s, 1866 to be exact, companies had been trying to lay cable across the Atlantic and tried and it sort of worked but failed. But by 1866, companies laid the first successful cables across the Atlantic. It went from Ireland at the westernmost point of Ireland and over to Newfoundland at the easternmost point of Newfoundland. And they ran cable across there on which they could send Morse code messages. So prior to that, if you wanted to send the message across the Atlantic, it was going to take about a week on the fastest possible ships to send a letter to your, your loved one. About a week. Not terrible. But now it was nearly instantaneous. Well, actually, it was about 16 hours. But compared to a week, that's pretty fast. Incidentally, the first message that went across that new wire that they laid through the bed of the Atlantic was this, quote, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace and goodwill to all men, end quote. So they, uh, they developed this new amazing technology that connected Great Britain and uh, the northern hemisphere of these, um, these Atlantic countries. So uh, did Christians use it? Yes, they did. Let me give you one ex great example. They figured out that Spurgeon's, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the most important, famous, best-known preachers in London in those days, mid to late 1800s, Spurgeon's sermons were, were desirable. People would pay for them. They wanted to have them available. So they figured out they could Morse code Spurgeon's sermons across that wire, across the Atlantic, bring it down into, say, New York City, and have it published. I don't know which day. I read it once, and I forget now. It might have been, like, by Monday morning. They had people working on this all night, plus they had the time change helping them. And by Monday morning in New York City, you could buy in your newspaper Spurgeon's sermon from the previous day. They were using tech. Christians before us were using tech, Morse code, wires laid through the ocean that was available to them to spread, spread the message faster and to more people. By the way, if we're going to talk about this, and we're not really, but I'll mention it, uh, what was the next step? Well, in the early 1900s, they figured out how to send Morse code by radio waves across the ocean. Yes, on December 12, 1901, the first wireless transmission of Morse code was sent across the Atlantic Ocean, and it was one letter, and it was the letter S. I don't know why they picked S, but they did. They picked the letter S. And soon after that, you had wireless transmission. So now it's really much faster to send messages long distances. So Christians, what am I saying? Christians have used the technology available to them in the past. It was feet. It was then a horse. It was a wagon. It was wind. It was sails. It was oars. It was the printing press. It was steam engines, steam um, steamships. It was Morse code. 
Um, but now let's fast forward right down to our day. We could mention other things in between there and our day, things like trucks and cars and airplanes and even radio and TV that Christians have leveraged and put their messages on for good or for bad, for better or for worse. But let's come down to our day, and we have what? We have the World Wide Web, don't we? Don't we, friends? And isn't it pretty amazing? So should Christians be using it? Should we leverage it for the cause of the gospel? Uh, should churches be on it? Should we use the various media platforms that are available that run on it? And here's my answer. Yes, but with open eyes. Yes, understanding some of the baked-in, built-in limitations. Yes, thinking about and being careful to negotiate around some of the unintended, unwanted, second- and third-order consequences of a change of media. Yes, we should cash in on some of the upsides, but we should also stay out of where there definitely are some downsides. You say, well, what downsides could there possibly be? Well, to answer, let me start in a general way. Here's something you need to know. Anytime you change media, anytime you change a technology, the change affects the message. Sometimes in lesser ways, sometimes in greater ways, sometimes in dramatic ways. Anytime you change a technology, it changes the message you are, you are communicating, and it changes your ability to communicate that with greater or lesser depth. Now, there are two great books about this. Let me just mention them to you. One from 1960, Marshall McLuhan, titled The Medium is the Massage or the Message. And then Neil Postman's book from 1985, Amusing Ourselves to Death, colon, subtitle, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. I'll show you that book. Here it is. I have my copy with me today. And these are both seminal works on understanding how changes of media, changes of technology really influence or affect your, your message. Let me put it another way. Not all media is similarly suited for rich content. And of course, our content is biblical content. It's supposed to be biblically rich. It's supposed to be contents dense, content dense. I'll use a phrase that I use sometimes around here, and one of our other guys repeated it to me the other day. Uh, this comes from uh, a Southern theologian before the Civil War, Robert Louis Dabney, and he said, your sermons need to contain dense compact, luminous truth. I like that. So that's where we want to be. Not all media is suitable for carrying that. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. Postman has on pages six and seven a really wonderful um, example of how media changes your ability to communicate your message. So here we go. He says, to take a simple example of what this means, consider the primitive technology of smoke signals. So we're thinking about smoke signals. We've just changed. We're not using the printing press. We're using smoke signals. Oh, it's exactly the same. It's just a different media. Well, is it exactly the same, or does it change things? He goes on. While I do not know exactly what content was once carried in the smoke signals of American Indians, I can safely guess that it did not include philosophical argument. Puffs of smoke are insufficiently complex to express ideas on the nature of existence. And even if they were not, a Cherokee philosopher would run short of either wood or blankets long before he reached his second axiom. You cannot use smoke to do philosophy. Its form excludes the content. So that would be a rather 
extreme example of how, man, you really can't do that at all by smoke signals. But there are less extreme examples of how, well, you can do that, but it's going to change it, and it's going to change it in these ways. And my point here is, before Christians just grab up whatever new technological thing comes at them, we need to critically evaluate it and say, wait a minute, can we still fit biblical content into this, and will biblical content come out on the other end as biblical content and not, say, for example, just showmanship? We need to ask ourselves before we use something, oh, wait a minute, does this really allow us to do ministry as the Bible expects us, demands us to do ministry, or will it affect our ministry and change it into something less than biblical? So, for example, let's take the matter of online services. What do you think of them? Are you for them or for you against them? I know people on both sides. Most of the people I know, I think, are for them. There are definitely some upsides in my view, and here I'll share a few of the upsides, and then we'll talk about a few of the downsides. So upsides. Online services are, of course, a real help, a blessing to those who are, I like this phrase, providentially hindered from attending church where they attend church. So what does it mean to be providentially hindered? It means I meant to go, but God brought something into my life that stopped me. I meant to go, but my horse fell in the ditch. I meant to go, but my car wouldn't start. I meant to go, but all three of my kids were sick. So you're providentially hindered. God in his providence allowed that thing to come into your life, and you're hindered from going to church. So online services are a great help to those who are providentially hindered. Maybe you're sick and you can't go. You're providentially hindered. Maybe you're away on vacation. You're traveling for business, and it happens on Sunday. You're out in a motel somewhere. You're providentially hindered from attending your church and maybe somehow any other church near you. What do you do? Well, you can log online, and you can at least, for what it's worth, and it's not worth as much as going to church in the brick and mortar with your brothers and sisters in Christ, but for as much as it's worth, you can participate in that somewhat limited way in the services of your church. Here's another upside of online church. Online services definitely help us. I'm talking about Cornerstone Community Church now. They definitely help us to make our presence known to people who live anywhere near us and might possibly attend us. For example, you probably don't know this, but uh, I hope you don't know this. I just got a haircut. Before coming here, I got a haircut, then I went home and showered, then I came over here. So got to talking with the girl giving me the haircut, and uh, she found out I'm a pastor, where's the church, and, oh, I've been thinking I ought to get to a, back to a church. I haven't been going to church in years, and I'm a Christian, and I feel bad about it. So we talked about our church, and when I left, she said, write down for me what your church is. So all I had to do was write down cornerstonejapa.org. Now, she can go home, and I hope she will, and she can really check out our church. Maybe she'll check it out and watch this podcast and say, hey, that was me. But she can go home and really check it out. Online services really help us to gather in guests who then come and attend our in-person services. In fact, we can pretty much assume everybody coming through our doors went to see us on the web first. Now and then I meet somebody and I ask them, did you visit us on the web? And they say, no, I just drove by and I saw you and thought I'd come in. Well, bless you who do that. But most people who are showing up here have visited and visited and maybe visited and visited and visited on the web before they say, all right, I'm going to go visit that church. And I don't blame them. I do that because it's a rough day when you go visit a church and "Hmm, that wasn't so good at all. And we just spent a Sunday looking and that wasn't a good fit for us. You can figure a whole lot out about a church on the web. 
So making our services available really helps us, and we believe it's brought a lot of people to Cornerstone Church, so there are advantages to this. They help you if you're providentially hindered. They help us to reach other people, and I'm sure there are more advantages, but I'm going to go on to some disadvantages. So are there any disadvantages to having your church services online? Are there any downsides? Are there any maybe unanticipated second-order effects that lead to unanticipated and unwanted third-order effects? Are there any things that we want to make sure we understand so we don't fall into that if we put our services online? Well, yeah, there are some definite disadvantages. Let me, let me mention some of them for you here. We've had to wrestle with these. Here's disadvantage number one. As I just said, they all visit you online before they come. And what they get online when they watch your service is not at all what they're going to get when they come into your building and be with your people and participate face-to-face and live. We didn't realize this. We were technologically naive. When COVID hit, prior to COVID, we did not have our services online. COVID hit, the governor shut us down for a brief time, and we said, man, we got to go online. So we did. I would not want you to see our first online example of worship services. But I had no idea it would be bad like that. We shot it. We recorded it. I preached to an empty room. We put it up on the web. I looked at it and went, oh, no, that looks terrible. Why did it look so terrible? Well, in the room, it doesn't look terrible because in the room, you've got the whole room. You've got all the people when they're all there. You, you've got all the singing in the room. You've got the amens in the room. You've got the, you know, the baby crying. You've got all of real life in the room. But when you put it online, all you have is a little square about that big of who's up front, what they're doing. All you see is the walls behind that person, which looked horrible online, by the way, at that point. And we realized, oh, man. This is going to hurt us, and it will. If you take your church online and you don't make it look really, really good, it's going to hurt you, not help you. It'll be there for your people if they're providentially hindered. It might not draw others to come visit you because here's what happens. I hate to say it this way, but let's be honest. They've been watching and watching and watching and watching TV that's world-class or at least pretty good looking. And they've been watching and watching and watching videos, and those are well done. And then they come and watch your web service, your online service, and it looks like junior high. That's really going to hurt you. So we figured out very quickly, oh, man, here's a second-order effect we did not anticipate. We look terrible when we're on the web. we got to fix this. And we literally worked like mad for at least a year just fixing and fixing and repairing and improving. And we're still fixing and impairing, repairing and improving all the time. So one problem of going online, one disadvantage is now they all see you. If you're going to do it, you got to do it really, really well. you got to work really hard at it or it's going to hurt you. Here's another downside, another second-order effect of having churches online. It is definitely easier, horribly easier. Makes me very unhappy how easy it is for people to say now, well, let's just do it this way. You wake up on Sunday morning and you say to your wife, Martha, my wife's name's Debbie, but I'm imaginary Martha, and you say, Martha, Oh, I don't really feel like going to church today. How about we just stay home? And she says, yes, dear, that'd be fine. We'll watch it online, okay? Okay. And somehow that makes you feel like it's all well. It's, it's as good or just as good. It's not. It's nowhere close. Having online services makes it way easier for people to stay home and be what we were, we were calling during COVID, jammy Christians. 
There were COVID Christians, people who were literally terrified of the disease. We, we said, all right, we understand that. You get a pass. You come back when you're ready. But there were also jammy Christians who said, I like staying home. And one of the unintended, unanticipated second order effects of COVID and closing churches and putting services online was this. A lot of Christians got discipled, got trained in, got habituated to staying home and hopefully watching the service online. It's cute. Some of the people in our church, and I respect them for this. I like this. They were telling me, hey, I watch it online when you're having the service. They added that detail. Like, I'm there then, man. I don't wait till two days later. I'm there then. Like, that added something to their presence. Well, it did. That meant something to me. They were trying to say, look, I'm scared of the disease, but I am watching you, and I'm doing it during church time. But man, it made, it made it a whole lot easier for Christians to just stay home and watch from home. And I want to say, don't be technologically naive. Watching a service at home is nothing, absolutely nothing, like actually attending church with your brothers and sisters in Christ and your pastors and all the people and doing all the things that Christians do in the room. There's no comparison. Did I emphasize that enough? All right, here's the third downside to using tech, to using the World Wide Web for church, to doing church online. Some churches, to my chagrin, are now promoting what they call their online campus, or worse, their campus in the metaverse. You can do campus in the metaverse. What, what do they mean when they talk about an online campus? Well, you understand this is coming from the idea that now we have multi-site churches. So we have a campus here and we have a campus there, and we're one church in seven locations. Or I think the biggest one in America is now about one church in 80 locations in 11 states with some, they claim, 80-some thousand people watching on a given Sunday. And it's the one preacher is preaching to all those people and all those locations and they need to work on their ecclesiology, but that's another subject for another day. However, so this, this idea of, well, hey, we have many campuses, but we're one church. Hey, there's the web now. Let's create an online campus. And so you can be a person who just attends. Yeah, I go to XYZ Church, and I attend their online campus. Like, you never go to the brick and mortar. You never go to the tent. You never go to the field, wherever the real believers are gathered. You're part of the online campus, and they legitimate that. They legitimize that. Pardon me. They make it like, oh, you're, it's one of our legit campuses. We're so glad you're part of it. And you can be that forever in your pajamas, in the comforts of your home, with your wife and your baby beside you. This is, may I say it, this is gross, technological naivete. There is no such thing as an online campus. There's only a such thing as a church gathering together. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves What's the next word? Together, as is the manner of some. And when you're on the, in the online campus, when you're in the digital campus, you are not together with people. What does it mean to be together with people? It means a lot more than I watched something that they were a part of. I watched something that they watched. Participating, let me say it this way, participating in an online service, watching an online service is absolutely nothing like, I said this earlier, I'm saying it again, absolutely nothing like being in the room. There's no comparison. And the Lord Jesus Christ wants you in the room or in the field or in the tent, 
in proximity with brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants you there where you hear all the other people singing and you feel the passion in their souls for the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. He wants you there where all the rich one another's of the New Testament can be carried out. And before and after and even during church, you're exhorting one another and praying for one another and encouraging one another and admonishing one another and supporting one another and weeping with one another. He wants you to be where pastors know you and you know pastors and they consider you to be part of their flock and they watch for you. There are just so many things you don't get when you go to the so-called online campus. And just just to kind of flesh that out a little bit, just to kind of uh, give an example of how that doesn't work, let me let me ask you to think about this. Imagine you're a single guy, you want to get married. So you meet a girl on an online dating site, and I'm not opposed to that. I'm thankful for that. That may help. And I know some people, I've met a number of people who are happily married and they met online. So bless the Lord for that. But suppose it worked this way. You met them online and then you had a date online. You ate dinner while she ate dinner and you're both on the camera. And so you had, we went out to dinner together. Did you really? Was it the same as going to dinner together? And then eventually you get married online, but you don't live, you're, you're doing family online. And then you have babies. I don't know how that would work. You have babies online and you're raising children online. And you see where I'm getting at. That is not a family. You cannot do a marriage that way. You can't raise kids that way. It is not going to work. The church is a family. And when you try to do church online, it's not going to work. It's not the same thing at all. To think that it is, to think that it's even a reasonable substitute is, I'll use this phrase again, it's gross technological naivete, not to mention that it's horrible ecclesiology. You seem to be forgetting all the things the New Testament tells us that church is supposed to be, and you're tossing them overboard for the comfort of worshiping at home. So that's a downside. The online campus, so long as this pastor's alive, Cornerstone Community Church is never going to have an online campus. We have an online presence in which we try to encourage you to be part of a physical brick-and-mortar campus somewhere or church somewhere near you. Not only is there online church, but now there's the metaverse. Well, I know very little about it, I must confess, but it's virtual reality. It's VR. You get your VR headset, this big goggle thing, and you wear it, and you create an avatar, a little little figure, like a comic figure that they're going to see. They're going to see you, this little avatar of you, and you're going to see them, this little avatar of you, and you're all in the same room having a worship service together. And you can see them raise their hands, and they can see you raise your hands, and so on, and you can move around, and they see you move around, and that will be your church. You say, really? Are people doing that? They're having church in the metaverse? Like, are pastors advocating this? You can't make this stuff up, folks. Let me give you some examples. This week, I watched videos, plural, by nationally respected church gurus on how to launch a metaverse service, and worse, how to launch a metaverse church. So it's like people would be, that would be their church. They'd be part of that church. Where do you go to church? In the metaverse. That is not going to church. I watched one very well-known church guru, and he had a, a guest on, and she said, quote, we have to decouple our egos from attendance, and if we can do that, we'd be so much more effective. Wow. Effective at what? I mentioned that large church. Uh, one of their statements is, we'll do anything short of sin to reach people. 
That sounds very good. They're building their entire church around evangelism, and they're forgetting there's biblical ecclesiology, and we don't do just anything that isn't overtly sin. There are ways the Lord Jesus wants us to do church and ways he does not want us to do church. We don't do anything short of sin to reach people. We do anything that's biblical, that doesn't violate one or another biblical truth or principle. But there are church leaders telling us we can do church in the metaverse. There's a pastor in Virginia. He's got a church. He launched the church. It is entirely in the metaverse. And at the time I checked about maybe six months ago, he had 200 people in his church that met met in the metaverse. Another video on how and why to launch a church in the metaverse talked about, quote, the anonymity of the avatar. In other words, when they see your avatar, they're not really seeing you. Nobody's really getting to know you, and you're not really meeting a them. You're just seeing little avatars, little comic figures of other people. And they said, quote, the anonymity of the avatar, here's the upside of it, leads to deep authenticity. I guess that means you won't mind sharing anything about yourself because they don't know who you are anyway. And somehow that's supposed to fulfill the biblical commands and the biblical desires of all the one another's of the New Testament, somehow that's supposed to represent authenticity. It's just naive. Here's another one. I'll give you one more quote. One of the gurus said, quote, We believe church can be anywhere, at any time, with anyone in the metaverse. It's folly, folks. It's not good ecclesiology. It's not good sociology. And it's not even good technology. You know what it is? It's church by smoke signals. You can't do church in the metaverse. You can't do church online. It's smoke signals. One's a little better than the other, but none of them are anywhere close. They're light years away from what church is supposed to be. So what I'm saying is, please don't use, you can't use, pastors, please don't uncritically use technology. You've got to think about, wait a minute, What are the second and third order effects that we haven't anticipated? What's this going to do to the body life, to Christians and one another? You've got to think about all that, and you've got got to go ahead and use the upsides, but steer clear of the downsides. Leverage the tech to reap the benefits of the upsides. Don't fall into the dangers. And again, what are some of the dangers? Staying home, replacing gathered worship with some form of online worship, And at its worst, maybe, metaverse worship. So here's a summary of what I've talked about today, and then I'm going to draw to a close. Thanks for hanging with me this long. Here's summary point number one. One, the Church of Jesus Christ can employ technology. Can't help but employ technology. We've always employed technology, but we must use technology wisely, thoughtfully, not naively and foolishly. We dare not toss biblical priorities, biblical commands, what the church is supposed to be, ecclesiology, just to be cool and trendy and have a church in the metaverse. We dare not do that. So that's number one summary. We can employ technology. We just don't want to do it thoughtlessly. Here's point number two in closing. You need to be part. You, dear friend, you, Christian, you need to be part of a vital living, thriving, breathing local church where you meet weekly, 
every week unless you're providentially hindered. Till Jesus comes or till you die, you need to be part of that church where you have brothers and sisters in Christ, and together you have community, and you have pastors who would name you as one of their sheep, and they know you and you know them, and they watch for your soul. This is the church experience Jesus Christ intends for you. This is what he hands you in his word. You need to be part of a good, healthy, Bible-preaching, Christ-honoring local church every week till you die or Jesus comes. Okay, so that's it for today, Church and Modern Tech. Thank you for joining me on Grounded today. Please share Grounded with a friend. Thanks for doing that.